Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon and um, happy 7th of July. Craig Roberts back with you after a bit of a uh, a brief time off. I'd share photographs of uh, where I went, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, my backyard's not all that exciting. Well, I trust you had a great 4th of July celebration, uh, as muted perhaps as it was. And so uh, here we are back into uh, second portion of 2020, the start of the third quarter. And a um, lot seems to be the same, doesn't it? Oh, with the exception of the fact that, well, yeah, I guess it does seem the same, doesn't it? Isn't it interesting how... July feels a lot like April, a lot like April in terms of where we're at in relationship to the global pandemic and most specifically here in the United States and where many other developed countries along the world have successfully managed to get a handle on all of this. We have fumbled and bumbled to such an incredible degree that I don't know that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel but for maybe the headlamp of a oncoming train for who knows how long it will be. We'll spend some time talking about that today. We'll also have an update for you on some Supreme Court decisions. We'll be joined by constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus later on in the program, along with Brian Johnston from the National Right to Life Committee. We lead off this afternoon, though with a visit from a dear friend and uh, one of the leading talk show hosts, not only in the Bay Area, but across the country. In fact, he hosts the longest-running libertarian talk show in the nation, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. He's always got some great insights to offer. In addition to his role as a talk show host, um, he is also a best-selling author and founder of LendersFunding.com. Always great to have join us on the program, Mr. Bob Zadek. And Robert, a happy belated 4th of July or Independence Day to you. I always like to call it Independence Day to remind everybody it is more than just an entry in a calendar. It is a significant event for the world. So I just, uh, I, like you, respectfully call it in honor of what happened. I like to call it, as you do, Independence Day. And thank you so much for inviting me to join you once again. And I think, Bob, perhaps uh, that's a good note to start on, to to underscore the fact that oftentimes the significance of this holiday gets lost. You know, we speak of other dates on the calendar and say perhaps New Year's Day, January 1st, every other we recognize by their proper titles or their associations, but we've always sort of relegated largely 
Independence Day to the 4th of July. And I think the mistake in that is borne out by the alarming number of Americans who have very little sense of exactly what Independence Day or July 4th really means, the significance of it all. And I'm reminded of that oft-quoted uh, comment by uh, Ben Franklin, uh, who apparently um, shortly after um, walking out of Independence Hall and having uh, been one of the signatories to um, our document, the question was posed to him by a passerby. So, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? And he said, a, a republic, if you can keep it, or words to that effect. And um, certainly in the process of trying to keep the health of this republic intact, the, um, the consequences of forgetting our history and not understanding the significance of the battles that were fought and of the brilliance that was lent by our founding fathers to the drafting of not just the Declaration of Independence that we mark on July 4th, but then too, of course, the crafting of our Constitution, the, the, the erosion of the understanding of all of this. I think Bob is not only appalling, but long term, don't we run the risk of really suffering um, the, the, the detrimental impact of the loss of the richness of this history and its significance? I, I fear that, as you do, Craig, and Ben Franklin, the quote that you gave exactly right was uh, a quote that Franklin offered to a woman journalist uh, who, um, after the constitutional deliberations were made in September of, it ended in September of 1787, and the Constitution was then finished, not yet adopted, but finished, after five long months of deliberation in very hot Philadelphia, uh, Ben Franklin, uh, was, his quote was, as you have said, a republic if you can keep it. And those words are prescient. It's astonishing. He, implicit in what he said is he feared that the reform of government we had with dual sovereignty of, of both the federal and the state government, they both had a role to play with uh, more self-determination than any nation on earth had ever experienced. Uh, there were those who had their doubts whether the experiment would succeed as he did in his tone. Yeah, Republic, if you can keep it. And if I may, Craig, only because you've touched both my heart and my mind, um, uh, another quote, often forgotten, and it must be remembered, is in the deliberations for the Constitution, it was a struggle, five months of hard work, negotiation. Many times the participants feared they would fail, and if they failed, they feared that it was the end of any experiment for democracy on Earth. It was an experiment, and they knew they had to succeed for, because all of the nations on Earth needed it. And when finally they were over the hump, and they had the last compromise, and there were no more barriers to approval of the Constitution, uh, Ben Franklin stood up, and he was the oldest man in the convention, and he was shaky, he had gout, uh, and George Washington, who presided over the Constitutional Convention, sat in this wooden chair, it's still in Independence Hall, and there was a carving on the back of the chair, which showed half of the rays of the sun, uh, and cut in half by the horizon. And Ben Franklin spoke to the group uh, in halting tones. He looked at that carving on the back of 
well, George Washington's chair, and he said to his colleagues, and I can paraphrase it, he said, uh, gentlemen, uh, many a day I have looked at the carving behind President Washington's chair, and I wondered to myself if that was a rising sun or a setting sun, and I stand before you today to tell you I am most assured it is a rising sun. And that, to me, is the most emotional quote that I have in my brain from the entire founding era, and I sure hope he's right. I do, too. It's wonderfully optimistic, although I must say there is perhaps a a growing concern amongst those who are paying close attention that we might be seeing, if we don't go about making some significant changes in our nation, I think, we might be witnessing the setting of that sun. I, I'm reminded of another quote, and I may butcher this one as well, so um, <laughs> my apologies in advance, but a, a, another great figure in American history, while not a founding father, nevertheless was critical in a pivotal moment in our nation's history, that of Abraham Lincoln, who in in pondering the challenges that our republic was facing at the time uh, made an interesting observation and and perhaps it is maybe even truer today than it was at that time he said something to to the effect of that our nation america would never be destroyed by enemies from within um from without rather but rather that we would if we ever faced destruction would come from the inside, almost the notion of, of uh, eating ourselves, so to speak. Uh, how how realistic do you think that warning is? How viable is that warning today? Well, you remember, you're asking the question of a person, me, who I guarantee is your most optimistic, positive viewing guest you ever could find. So I start with that optimistic bias. And yet, I worry. I worry because with every passing generation and with the decline in civics education, I worry that the founding principles, which was the opening to your show, I worry that the principles get diluted. It's almost like you have a tea bag and you only have one tea bag and you keep on filling up the tea the hot water pitcher with water and you pour it over the tea bag and every time you do that the tea is weaker and weaker and that's the metaphor that comes to mind to answer your question and unless the tea gets reinforced or founding principles get re-inculcated in future generations there's just dilution and it seems to me just an observation that strangely enough those people who hold our first principles, the principles of self-determination, freedom, be all you can be, uh, self-reliance, personal responsibility, those founding principles, those Lockean uh, principles are held and preserved most passionately by immigrants who live most of their life without it. And to them, it is something they only imagined and now they have it and we have taken too much for granted we have become just too spoiled if you will and it pains me that we we have to remember it's not it's not a birthright that we have freedom is hard work and voting and being a good citizen is hard work 
And it's easy to say, well, let others do it. I have more base desires. I have my own self to deal with, and I'm not going to pay attention. It's so easy when generation after generation, we've had it kind of easy. And uh, that's what I fear. Now, I don't think it's going to happen because I just believe the, print, the first principles of our country are too natural within all of us. They just are there. Uh, it's just part of who we are, part of who all humans are. And I believe that will get us through. But I just would close by saying I implore people, do not take what we have for granted. Cherish it and work hard to preserve it. There is, though, a growing threat, is there not, that is perhaps largely from the arena of ignorance, not necessarily a lack of motivation or willingness to fight, per se, or to stand up for those principles, to defend those principles. But when you have such a growing percentile of the population, Bob, who think that freedom is free, who do not have that perspective, and you touched on this a moment ago, and I'm glad that you did, because we forget about the fact that our founding fathers, they too were all immigrants. They knew from where they came. They knew the freedoms that they had gained and the freedoms that were fragile that could be as easily, if perhaps even more so, readily lost if those freedoms were not defended at all costs. And sadly, we've got a growing percentage of the population here today that doesn't have that as a, a reference point because they've never stepped foot outside of America. They have no, um, no experience upon which to compare and contrast. And so when you, when you add that lack of life experience to growing degree of ignorance and lack of knowledge as to what this republic is and what it means, doesn't that inherently put things at greater risk? I am, I am maybe a little bit, and it's only in the margins, Craig, I'm a little bit less uh, harsh uh, in criticizing uh, the, the word ignorance. Uh, Americans, if, if when they vote, uh, we have discussed this, I believe, on earlier shows together, uh, but when Americans vote and exercise their civic responsibility, because of the centralization of power in Washington, and if there's one first principle in our form of government, it is it evidenced the founders' fear of any concentration of power, whether it's concentration in an entity, in a company, in an organization, in a union, or in a government. And men, men automatically... If they have a bit of power, they want more. It's kind of natural. And so the Constitution was built to decentralize power so that we have one department's ambition fighting against the ambition of another. And in Madison's concept, those competing power centers neutralize each other and no power is directed at the people. That part of the design is not working so well with concentration of power in Washington, concentration of power in the executive, uh, uh, devolution in power from the ex from the legislative branch. We have huge concentrations of power because the lust for power was able to overcome the co through mistakes and otherwise constitutional constraints, and so. 
when we fear government is too much in our lives, that's because citizens have, whether they know it or not, have ceded too much power to Washington and have been kind of bought off. And that power now, one way or another, is the source of many of our problems. And that is such a key point that you're bringing up because there is a a reality check here that I think we all need to be aware of, and that is not the notion that somehow there has been an usurping of that power and control by the executive branch or by the legislative branch, Um, and, and that just simply is not true. That, in fact, we, as everyday taxpaying, voting Americans have step by step, inch by inch, moment by moment, ceded more and more power. I mean, when you see even the executive branch saying, well, if Congress can't get it done, I've got a phone, I've got a pen, suggesting that there will be an attempt at legislation by the executive branch, which of course is a duty that is singularly held to the people through Congress by the Constitution, it it demonstrates the fact that, well, maybe it takes us to the heart of Lincoln's observation, that the enemy from within will be that which destroys us. And I don't mean to, to chime in and bring this back to a, a tremendous sense of um, um, negativity or that we're somehow hearing the, uh, the, the, the final nails being driven into the coffin of America. I don't suggest that for a moment. But I do think that we could run the risk of heading rapidly in that direction if we do not take more control back so that power emanates from the bottom up and not the other way around. Best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek is with us tonight. He, of course, is the host of the nation's longest-running libertarian talk show, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer, every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. Bob, by the way, has a number of books, including his most recent, Secret Sauce, the Founder's Original Recipe for Limited American Democracy. That and other resources available at Bob's website. Check it out at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. We take a brief time out. Bob made reference to one of our founding fathers. We'll talk a bit about him as our conversation continues here on the Tuesday, July 7th edition of Lifeline. Get a look at traffic for you right now. The latest 523 from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation today with best-selling author and syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, really more of a tease of sorts uh, in our limited time this afternoon. You get a chance to enjoy Bob um, full length and um, wide open, no holds barred, as the saying goes, every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. here in the Bay Area on 860 a.m. The Answer. You can get details about other resources, podcasts, Bob's books, as well as other stations that carry the program by going to his website, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Bob, you made reference to one of our founding fathers uh, before the break. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when we think about the, the pivotal role that was played by George Washington as um, our our first president, certainly the the key leader of the Revolutionary War, a lot of people are under the misimpression that perhaps the the biggest challenge that he faced in fighting that war 
was fighting better trained, better equipped redcoats. But in fact, and as uh, you revealed in a um, 4th of July email, it uh, it was something much more significant perhaps than that, or, or maybe I should say not significant, but more insidious than that. George Washington was confronted from when he first took command. He had to deal with, this will sound um, right at home to our listeners today, he was confronted with the problem of smallpox. Smallpox, it was feared, justifiably so, that smallpox, not the British, uh, represented the greatest threat to his army. And at the time, of course, medical treatment was quite crude, although there were inoculations, and he had to deal with, he was not a trained physician, but Washington as most of the great planters were, were skilled in so many um, uh, matters because they had to run complex plantations. They had to be medicine and biologists and um, and uh, be able to raise crops and be botanists. They had to have a lot of skills and carpenters. They all had those, or many of them had successful ones had skills. And Washington was not, of course, trained in medicine. Medicine was very crude. The only real cure was bleeding people. And that's how Washington died. He died because he was being bled because he had a cold and didn't work, obviously, in 1799. But Washington had to deal with smallpox, and there were inoculations which were a cure, but of course inoculation meant that the soldiers had to suffer a period of time of being ill. And while they were ill from the smallpox, they, can, they uh, were given by inoculation, they couldn't fight. And, that, and also they could then pass the smallpox on to other soldiers. And the fear was decimation of the army. And that was true throughout the revolutionary period at Washington Actually, and, and inoculation uh, was sometimes frowned upon because it did kill soldiers, and uh, many inoculations were done under the table, if you will, by soldiers. They did it themselves. They would self-inoculate so they could control their illness because, of course, once you suffered the disease uh, through inoculation, it was mild, and you would have a high likelihood of recovery. And uh, interestingly enough, since smallpox was relatively, was not, was a disease that wasn't common in the U.S., the British soldiers were, had what we call today herd immunity. So they weren't in danger of concocting smallpox, smallpox as the American soldiers were. So it was a disease that threatened the American army more. And the story of Washington dealing with the disease throughout the revolution between isolation, which we hear about today, finding deserted farmhouses and using that for the soldiers. It was a big deal at the time. And one of Washington's many successes were, and many people believe he might not have won the war, simply lacking the manpower, had he not found a way to overcome through inoculation the soldiers. Uh, he That was instrumental in ultimately Washington winning the revolution. It's a story that's not told very often, uh, but it, Washington deserves enormous credit, and it once again reminds us of all of the suffering the soldiers went through uh, in Valley Forge and in other, uh, when they were not fighting in the winters, but they were uh, bivouacked uh, in the snow without the right clothes. Uh, that was the smallpox risk 
was less a threat to the soldiers when they were at home on farms because they weren't in concentrated areas. But they were concentrated, of course, when they were serving in the military. So to volunteer for the Army, once again, among other dangers, a soldier knew he was greatly increasing his chances of being exposed to smallpox. It's an underreported story. It doesn't make a lot of history books, but it's an interesting story. And it's a good time to tell the story because we should not hear it in comfortable 21st century America start to feel too sorry for ourselves for the relatively minor inconveniences of the pandemic. The soldiers in Washington's army had it, to say the least, a lot worse. Indeed so. And, and, you know, in addition to literally taking life and limb at risk in volunteering to be in an army to fight for a country that had barely awoke and um, the success of which, again, up against the better trained, better equipped uh, British soldiers was going to be a pretty significant gamble to begin with. And then add to that the complexity of a pandemic or a plague like smallpox and the the primitive degree or primitive nature of so-called Western medicine at the time, where if you didn't get taken out by um, the blunderbust of a um, uh, red coat, there was as great a likelihood to be taken out by catching smallpox. Um, certainly significant part, and I think that that perspective that you bring, Bob, in terms of understanding as much as we are in sort of this, gee, our summer has been interrupted, what a terrible spring we had, we miss baseball, look at the terrible sacrifices that we're going through just to try and survive, that there have been times in American history where the price paid was significantly greater and yet paid nevertheless by those that have gone before us who understood what a great republic we had if we can only and keep Washington, it. if I may, Washington um, uh, decided to inoculate, run the risk, and his gamble, he was brilliant at this, his gamble paid off, and the statistics are that fewer than 1% of the soldiers in Valley Forge um, died from being inoculated, and so many more lived as a result of the inoculation, that his gamble, he was a gambler, Washington, uh, when the stakes were high, and it almost never guessed wrong. And he then repeated that in Valley Forge in the winter of 1778 to similar effect. Washington, in short, knew what he was doing. We appreciate you sharing that story, Bob, and always good to spend some time with you. Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer, here locally in the Bay Area. Details and resources available on the web at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. 535, let's get you updated on some traffic. We'll head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, certainly if you uh, attend church with any degree of regularity, you know that choirs, soloists, and hymns have long been a heart of the praise and worship portion of the um, 
weekly church experience, a church service, but now public health risks are forcing California congregations to adapt to a new ban on singing in places of worship. And needless to say, it's creating quite the stir. Let's get some details now from constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Counselor, always great to have you with us. Uh, Certainly there's big, big challenges here in terms of some of the inconsistencies that we're seeing across the state. For example, over the weekend, um, there were inspectors sent out throughout Santa Clara County to various restaurants to see whether or not restaurants were keeping in compliance with um, many of the, the policies and rules put in place by the county and by the state. Some cases they've been told, yes, it's okay to open up again, meeting certain limits and with certain social distancing. Others told, no, you couldn't do it at all. you got to close down indoor dining entirely. And so the notion that there is inconsistent creation and application of rules and regulations pertaining to coronavirus is certainly something that's not new. But give us a bit of a background in terms of the the genesis of this most recent uh, sort of rub when it comes to uh, churches gathering and what they can and can't do. Certainly. Well, many churches, as you know, Craig, uh, you know, across the—well, all churches basically were shut down completely initially in California and across the country— for the most part, and then uh, they started doing the reopening, and then they started saying, well, <clears throat> restaurants, you can reopen, churches, you can't really open yet. Uh, other events, activities, you can do it, but churches can't protest. Yeah, we're going to allow that. That's, that's no process. First Amendment rights, but churches, no, you, you can't. You're not protected by the First Amendment to, to, to come together and worship. So it's, it's been very problematic. Um, we've seen some victories. We had a victory in Calaveras County and a uh, major federal case we, we filed, and uh, we're seeing some success. Then, Craig, the governor came out with this no singing uh, pronouncement, saying you cannot sing, um, and, and the media took this, and they reported that singing is banned in churches. Well, we did our homework at Pacific Justice Institute, and our chief counsel took this on personally, uh, we investigated it. What we found out is that it's actually it's not that bad in terms of it's not that binding, because it doesn't. It only applies to. Uh, it's an OSHA guideline, Occupational Health and Safety Administration guideline, for the state of California, which means it only applies to paid employees. So, uh, as far as members, atten- people attending church, um, volunteers in a church, they can sing and worship to their heart's content. Obviously, it's good to have you know proper spacing, just social distancing. They may or may not want to wear a mask, but uh, they're free to sing. And then as far as those who are paid, like the worship leader uh, or the pastor, you know, they're up there singing. Um, they're paid employees, so technically they're not supposed to sing. But even then, I, I, I think it's, you know, going to be difficult to go after them and prove that they were singing and not lip-singing. Uh, it's okay to lip-sing, you just can't sing. So, and then when they're so far distant, so far away from the congregation, which a pastor usually is, a worship leader usually is, and even the worship team are usually spaced way out. I don't see that as, as really a bona fide risk. So bottom line, worship is legal, singing is legal, and uh, people should uh, do so without fear of the government this, this coming Sunday. Now, now, when I first read this story, I thought, uh-huh, 
Somebody has finally complained. It took 40 years for it to happen, but somebody finally got to the authorities and said, can you please, please stop Craig Roberts from singing? <laughs> but but well, all, no, all but kidding. Craig, that, Craig, that wasn't you. That was me they had on that list. Oh, was so. it you? Okay. No, normally yeah. I say they, they ask me to sing only when they need the building evacuated in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> But but all kidding aside, uh, what, what, what about, I mean, I I understand in theory that you're opening your mouth wider and louder and doing so, projecting more and and therefore likely, uh, you know, uh, air do- droplets and so forth can 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 spread further and all that. I I, I get that part. But is, is there any guidelines in terms of saying, well, we still maintain the, the six-foot distance between people, or there was a cap, wasn't there, at least initially, that you could not have any more than, was it 50% of normal capacity? No, 25%. 25 right. of no, percent of normal capacity in a church. So well, if those kinds of guidelines are being observed, why, does, why is this now suddenly, why is singing suddenly problematic when it wasn't a month ago? Well, you're right, and actually the guideline is even worse. It says uh, 25% capacity or 100 maximum, whichever is less. So it's it's really draconian. And, and yeah, and I, I've talked to my, my dear friend, uh, Bishop Bob Jackson, about this, who has a church that can, can easily accommodate 4,500 to 5,000 people and saying, you know, Craig, we, we could we could give people 60 feet distance uh, on all sides and yeah. and still exceed the hundred um, maximum with with no effort whatsoever. So right. I mean the 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 one size fits all approach to this just doesn't make any sense. You almost get the feeling as if clearly whoever's creating these rules and regulations doesn't attend church. Exactly, it should be whatever whichever is more, not whichever is less. Or at the very least, or just simply have no number limit and just say, based on occupancy, uh, you know, here's the percentage occupancy. And that, that's, that's rational and reasonable, but even then it needs to be fair as compared to restaurants and other places of gathering. So uh, anyway, but as far as this, this goes, the, the reality is um, the singing is really scientific, you know, really not a threat if you have proper distancing. And the reason I can say that confidently is because Coughing and sneezing, um, you're supposed to be protected from that if you are, at, you know, um, at least six feet away. That's social distancing. You don't even have to have a mask as long as you have social distancing. You know, so you're you're protected from the cough and the sneeze. Well, if you put your hand up to your ear, about a foot away from your mouth, and people can do this. Maybe if they're driving, it's not a good idea. But uh, they can, you know, uh, sing. They can, you know, and they just say they're singing, and and they'll notice they probably don't feel it. But if they cough or they sneeze, they'll feel it, which means the cough and the sneeze is significantly more, has more thrust to it distance-wise than simply singing. So it's, it's really uh, unreasonable just based upon the, the, the rational basis of the science and the, and the restrictions to begin with. So singing is fine both in terms of legally uh, as well as in terms of uh, biologically so long as you have that safe distancing. An update from constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. More information available online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. It's 548. Get a look at traffic for you now from the KFAX Traffic Center.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, in um, recent days, the U.S. Supreme Court is certainly not making any friends within the evangelical or Christian community. Uh, Witness, for example, the most recent decision handed down by the high court just a week ago Monday, ruling that a Louisiana law requiring that individuals, doctors who perform abortions at clinics, must have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because we know that mistakes happen. It happens with great frequency. And mistakes can cost lives, quite frankly. And so there had been a law passed in Louisiana that in order to perform an abortion, you had to have admitting rights, admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. So that if something went wrong, there was a way for that doctor to get that person some immediate medical attention. Well, the court ruled last Monday that this places a, quote, undue burden on women seeking abortions. In a 5-4 ruling in the case, it raises some significant concern. Let's get a look at this as we're joined by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And, Brian, this was another jaw-dropping decision by the court and signaling perhaps that the turn that we thought we would see with the appointment of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch to the high court on this topic frankly just hasn't happened yet though let me be clear they both voted um on the the side for life in this case but nevertheless yeah. we're seeing some decisions by the high court that many find troubling yes that's right craig and if you recall just the the week before you and i were talking about this very decision waiting for it to come down and really talking about how the chief justice is such an important and pivotal figure right now I do want to remind folks, though, here's the thing about this particular law. It really not only has Craig described the need when there's a botched abortion, but point of fact, and that's the case in California as well, but in Louisiana, every surgery that's done in a doctor's office, and by the way, throughout medical practice, that's in fact in many in England, the UK, and Ireland, I'm familiar with, a doctor's office is literally called their surgery. And it's downstairs a lot of times in some of these small practices. It's downstairs in their house. It's called the doctor's surgery. And so it's not uncommon for surgery to be done by a doctor in a non-hospital setting. And in Louisiana, every doctor that does any kind of surgery is required to have admitting privileges if they're doing surgery off-site, like, like at, their, at their own practice. And so this is not just picking on abortion. This is just saying that's what we expect of of every doctor. So this was a very reasonable law. And in point of fact, I want to offer some hope because let's let's point this out. This is not taking down Roe v. Wade. This was really just limiting the special privileges that had been given to abortion. And sadly, as we talked about now two weeks ago, uh, we were concerned about the chief justice, and lo and behold, he did what we were concerned he might do, and that is he decided to rule with the left side of the court. And I'm going to say right now, um, I'm not going to 
justify him in any way. I, I'll tell you in a second what I think he's thinking, but this is a disappointment. It really is a disappointment. But don't lose hope because this was never about challenging this was Well, let me ask you a question because if, as, as you look at this on, on par, and there was an opinion written by Justice Breyer noting that this particular Louisiana law was almost word-for-word word identical to a Texas law that had also been ruled by the court in 2016 as unconstitutional. I'm wondering if maybe the failure here, and again, like you, I'm not necessarily making excuses for Chief Justice Roberts, no relation, by the way, but I am wondering if maybe part of the fault was that this was the wrong case to bring before the court on this point, that perhaps because of the court striking down a very similar law in 2016, that there was almost a fait accompli. Do you think that's true? And if so, was there an error made in even bringing this particular law before the high court? See, and that's what we had talked about two weeks ago. This is nearly the identical, it's the identical principle. So why did it come back and why so quickly? And so I want to remind listeners the fact that the court didn't rule with us. This does not mean, this did not really even signify Roe v. Wade. If anything, this is a commentary on the now special position that abortion has in the realm of medical practice and in the realm of law. But in point of fact, even if they had ruled with us, it would only have been a a minor limitation on what abortionists can do in their own practice, requiring them to have those privileges and those additional privileges. Back to the Chief Justice, very quickly, it's very common in any political setting. I've seen it in, in legislative setting. If you're a swing vote, you become one of the most powerful members of that deliberative body. And... You think about it, whether it be on a church board, <laughs> whatever it is, that swing vote, if, if it's someone that can actually go one side or one side, they become very pivotal because they, in essence, are the ones that make the decision. And that's what we see Chief Justice Roberts doing. He had actually ruled on behalf of the pro-life side in the Texas case. That previous Texas decision, he had actually ruled that they should be required to have admitting privilege. So this is a stunner when he turns around and rules against the very principle that he had voted for. And that's Do, do, do you get the sense things. because of that that perhaps he's holding his vote, so to speak, for a more critical, more pivotal case? I mean, that sounds terribly political, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think there needs to be some acknowledgement that even the high court is not immune from politics. This is very, very much, and it has, it's part of the internal politics. And again, I don't want to bore people, but there's internal politics even with the court. And the chief justice, in principle, is supposed to control the court. But when there has been, and this was the case, we remember Tony Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy, from Sacramento originally, Anthony Kennedy was that moderate swing vote that would go either way. And people may not realize what was happening, but that actually gave him great power. He could determine entire cases, and that's just a political process. We see the Chief Justice doing the same thing now, and it does two things. It puts him back as the one controlling the court instead of a a rebel swing vote like Kennedy was. Kennedy was not Chief Justice. So, in one sense, Roberts, and I'm not justifying this in any way, I'm disappointed Understood. in his decision. 
But what he was doing, he was asserting his authority, and then also, and this is what he wrote, he ruled the way he did because the court had already ruled. He was, he was protecting the integrity, in his mind, quote-unquote, the integrity of the court as the Supreme Court, and he was upholding stare decisis and literally acknowledging what we've just talked about. They just decided this issue, and now they come around, and they're going to suddenly overturn an issue they had just decided, and the weight of his argument for his justification was entirely starry diseases. That is to say, he sees his job as protecting the integrity of the Supreme Court. And in one sense, it sounds, and I, again, I disagree, it wasn't to reconsider these issues. And that's what's amazing, because when he initially saw the Texas law, he himself voted with the conservative side. And now for him to turn, again, it's disappointing. It shows you that politics is everywhere, and particularly in the high court. You and I already know this, and all the listeners know that, that our courts are really actually somewhat political. But that being said, I don't want us as pro-life people and as listeners and thinking about the political process, don't be disheartened. Don't be disheartened by this. Don't be disenchanted by everything and walk away, which some people think. Oh, that's what we have to do. No, this was, if anything, politically speaking, I hate to use this word from from when we were kids, this decision was a nothing burger. Really? (laughs) Yeah, and and, and your, your point is a very valid one, because at the end of the day, had they suddenly switched and essentially contradicted the decision that had just been handed down a scant not even four years ago, um, it, it, it raises questions of integrity by the court or toward the court. And then suddenly, if later on down the road a pivotal decision is handed down, the likelihood of that, in, again, in favor of, of the pro-life stance, the likelihood of that opening the floodgates, so to speak, in an effort to try and reverse whatever that decision might be, uh, I, I think would be amplified by that kind of inconsistency. And as you point out, um, this was not a make-it-or-break-it kind of decision. While certainly at face value, it's disappointing. Um, You know, sometimes, and we've talked about this a lot, related specifically to this topic, sometimes this is a battle that's won by major steps, major strides. You're taking entire towns. um, And other times, it's a battle that's won inch by inch, foot by foot, hill by hill. And so we think of this as not necessarily a loss per se, but hopefully queuing things up for something more significant in the near future. Again, I'll remind you that Brian Johnston goes into these issues in great depth every week on Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock right here on KFAX. You can get more information, by the way, by going online to CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11 o'clock with Brian Johnston right here on KFAX. 6.04, the clock. Let's get you updated on traffic right now. The latest from the KFAX Traffic Center.